Heads up, this episode of Making contains some explicit themes and unbleeped swear words. Enjoy. I mean, who would have thought that a six foot four black drag queen with blonde hair would be an international star? Well, I would have thought that, and that's what happened. Listen up, honey. From WBEZ Chicago. Can I have your attention, please? This is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. Today. Wake up, Pearl. Good luck, and don't f*** it up. I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) It's Making RuPaul. He's arguably the most famous drag queen in the world. With Emmys, Tonys, and 14 studio albums, RuPaul's work is well known. But his legacy reaches far beyond Hollywood awards. He's opened doors for the queer community and brought drag to a whole new stage. The most influential queer show that has ever existed. Of course, Rue, because she's the mother of everything. You have changed the world of drag forever. What does it take to change a culture? What were the making years for RuPaul Andre Charles? A drag queen? A drag queen? Queen, I am the queen of drag. <laughs> Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. Joining us to discuss RuPaul's early years and sparkling legacy are four guests. First, we have close friend and DJ Larry T, who wrote RuPaul's smash hit, Supermodel, You Better Work. You better work. (laughs) You better work. That's right. Next, we have a queen that's been by Ru's side since his Atlanta years, founder of Wigstock and legendary drag queen, Lady Bunny. Thank you so much. And please don't forget that I am Rue's younger drag sister. (laughs) (laughs) We also have commentator and author of Drag, The Complete Story, Simon Doonan. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, you may have seen her on Drag Race or All Stars, right here from Chi-Town, Shay Coulee. I'm so excited to be here, and I did not come to play. I came to slay. Work. So I want to go around and ask a warm-up question to everybody. One word to describe RuPaul. Gorgeous. Oh, oh my God. Um, Alien. Extraordinary. Magnetic. RuPaul's mother visited a psychic when she was pregnant. That psychic said Ru would be famous. So I grew up with this idea knowing I would be famous. I didn't know how. He had three sisters. After his parents divorced, his single mom raised them all. It was a house full of women in charge. So by the time he was four, he began dressing like Diana Ross and Jane Fonda. Here's his sister in a 2001 A&E biography. There was one person across the street um, who said to Ru, you, Ru, should be the girl, and you, Rozzy, should be the boy, because I was a total tomboy. After flunking out of high school, Rue moved to Atlanta with his sister, Renetta, and her husband. He went to a performing arts school there, but never graduated. Instead, he helped out at the family car dealership. Then one day... There was a public access television show I saw uh, called The American Music Show, and I 
felt like I discovered America. I was like, okay, this, this is where I belong. These people understand me. They were sarcastic. They were funny. So I wrote them a letter. And I said, I need to be on your show. It was public access TV filmed at someone's house with a budget of $5. He sent it a tape, and they were sold. He appeared on the series regularly. This is the American Music Show, season 14, number 6, tape February 19th to be shown, February 22nd, 1985. Tonight featuring me, RuPaul. RuPaul finally found his people. Imagine the Atlanta nightclub scene in the early 80s. Just a couple of kids messing around and dressing like punk rockers. It was yesterday morning. I think I was I was I was um, tripping yesterday morning, and I what? I'm just tripping on life. And I realized that I'm do I'm doing a lot of the thinking for other people that they don't have time to do because they're busy working or doing something else. And that's what I feel I do. So I write books and I perform live on stage. I do videotape. Eventually, he created his own band. First, RuPaul and the U-Hauls. Then, Wee Wee Pole. At night, he'd perform in drag. Here's RuPaul in 1983. But in 1984, RuPaul's roommate Lady Bunny founded the drag festival Wigstock in New York City. It was time for the crew to spread their wings and head to the Big Apple. Just want to quickly point out, RuPaul's been pretty vocal over her career that she does not have a preferred pronoun of choice. She said, you can call me he, she, they. Uh, so we're going to do a mix, just a clarification for our listeners. So, Larry, let's start with you. You were friends with Ru in Atlanta in those early days in the 80s. What was it like meeting RuPaul? You know, I remember at the time uh, when RuPaul showed up, I thought he had like fallen out of the sky. When I say I thought he was an alien, he was just so different from Atlantans that we knew. Here was this fully blown rock star character that just landed fully formed. And when he showed up at the American Music Show, they said, so what would you like to do on our show? And he said, oh, I don't know. And so he would lip sync other people's songs, maybe a Whitney Houston song. And uh, I mean, there was just nothing, there was nothing like him. Uh, there were no drag role models. There were no tall, skinny, gay dudes that knew they were going to be a star. And they, you know what, they, that would be the first thing they would tell you when you met them is that it was, it was practically, hi, I'm RuPaul. I'm a big star. Now, Lady Bunny, can you tell me the first time you met RuPaul in Georgia? How'd you meet Ru? And what was your first impression? We, it was probably at a show for Larry T's band, The Now Explosion, where Rue and I were go-go dancers. We didn't get paid. We just wanted to make the scene and we could get into the clubs for free. And uh, that was uh, that was how we met. Um, it's interesting to me to say, to hear his mom saying that, that he was going to be famous no matter what, because... The funny thing is, none of us had any money back then. We were all shopping at thrift stores. One time we got a gig as extras on a film set and took the lunch money, <laughs> left the set, and uh, and we went to the thrift store to, to spend that money. But, you know, the, we, we were all kind of, you know, artsy-fartsy bums. Rue's jobs in Atlanta would be few and far in between, as were mine. So we would do things like work at Popeye's, but not Rue. <laughs> 
Rue would just wait for months and months and months until, you know, there was a show. I'm glad he became famous because he he works his ass off now, but would, it, he was not going to work at a job that was beneath him. <laughs> Even though he had no money. Putting a new emphasis on you better work. <laughs> exactly. Rue yeah. would just go up to people in clubs and say, do you have a dollar? And it was so insane <laughs> that people would often give it to him. So, you know, it was it was like you just weren't. You weren't really used to that. Shay, I'm going to bring you in here. You weren't even born during this era of nightlife yet. So I, I kind of want to get your reaction to this era. Does this sound any different than what drag is now? Um, I feel like with people like RuPaul, it's very few and far between that you meet someone that has just so much like recognizable star power just from like the moment that you meet them. And it's funny to go through all of these descriptions um, that everyone is sharing with their firsthand accounts because I've only experienced this through photos and videos. You know, there's this very specific video of like a night out that's like somewhere on YouTube with like RuPaul and this like white kind of like negligee kind of corselet top and this really short skirt and this trench coat that honestly, I think of all the time because you can really see RuPaul being a working girl talking about their experience in the club saying, I let all these men touch on me for money, but girl, I got to pay these <laughs> bills. So, and I was just like, and I've been there in the club when you're, when you're, when you're trying to get a couple of extra dollars and um, there's a chaser there at the club and you're like, you know, I mean, I guess you can grope my thigh and then give me a 20. Honestly, <laughs> hearing all of this, it's like, look, the hustle is real and it doesn't really go anywhere. It's like not everyone gets the luxury of being an international global superstar. So like the girls that are deep, you know, within the scene, they got to hustle and the hustle's real. Wait, are you telling me that you get $20 for someone to grope your thigh? I've got to raise my prices. <laughs> you oh you got to negotiate, bud, bud. Ru RuPaul just got $1 back then. He was very happy. <laughs> Inflation. It's crazy. Sounds like an industry I need to jump into myself. I mean, $20. <laughs> yeah. that's, my, that's my thigh. They say thick thighs save lives. I've got them. Yes. <laughs> now, after Atlanta, RuPaul and crew decide to head to NYC. Larry T., you went with Ru. Why did you all decide to make that move? Yeah, you know, actually, after we had, uh, you know, made every movie, done every uh, song that we could write and done the clubs until we were just bored out of our minds, we hit a point where we really needed uh, to do something, but we didn't really know what it was. So we just loaded up all our stuff in a van and uh, decided to move to New York. And I'm telling you, right as we we're crossing the Tennessee border, we had a flat tire. It literally blew out violently and the van flipped on the interstate. Wow. And literally our stuff was blown out of the back of the van like confetti. <sighs> And, and it was like this warm November, weird November day. And we were like scrambling around on this empty interstate, gathering up our life's possessions. And most of it really didn't matter, like the outfits and the wigs and the glitter balls and the music equipment. But uh, we did manage to save the important thing. And once we got the tire fixed and we got the, the van rolling again, we drove to a Heritage USA, Jim and Tammy Baker's amusement park in <laughs> Tennessee, because... 
that was just like what we would do. I, you know, it was like that was our best idea at that point was to go yes. to uh, Jim and see Jim and Tammy Baker after nearly killing ourselves. So, um, were you hurt? Was anybody hurt? No. Wow. No. No, I remember actually, it's funny. After the van flipped back over uh, upright, I was like, I just sat there in the, the, the van, like, kind of in sort of in shock, I guess. And Rue kind of nudges me and says, Hey, doll, I think we should get out of the van. Like, <laughs> I, but I was just so, I was just like, What happened? And, uh, you know, and, and I mean, that should have been a sign of what's to come after that. <laughs> Things weren't all glitz and glam in the big city. Rue and his friends struggled to make ends meet. Here's his friend Floyd on A&E. We slept in Central Park. We slept in Abingdon Square Park. We slept in Tompkins Square Park. We would sleep at people's houses. We would people sleep at people's houses that wanted to sleep with me. We would sleep at people's houses that didn't want to sleep with me. But RuPaul hustled. He performed in drag and went go-go dancing every night to make himself known. Here's Rue at New York's Pyramid Club in 1984. Soon, his name was known across the city. And in 1989, he was named Club Queen of Manhattan. One day, his friend Cindy Wilson asked him to be in a music video for her band, the B-52s. The song was... It was his first national stage. Then RuPaul released a song that changed it all. You better work. My next guest not only can get away with wearing the shortest of skirts, but she can almost dunk a basketball, too. Performing her hit single, Supermodel, You Better Work, a girl who knows how to dress for success, RuPaul. Supermodel, You Better Work, hit the top 50 charts. It became one of the biggest dance club anthems of the 90s. RuPaul was officially national. Every time I hear that song, it just gets Every single time. Every single time. It was a hit then, and it is a hit now. Yeah, that's house music for you. Timeless. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Simon Doonan, going to bring you in here, our drag historian here today. Uh, (laughs) Paint the scene for me. What was the NYC nightlife like in the 80s and 90s? What happened in the 80s was truly extraordinary. There was this unfurling of creativity, a collision, explosion of culture. There's graffiti, there's fashion, there's style, there's music. It's all colliding for the first time. You know, you have people like Keith Haring, Madonna, Warhol changing the culture. And Rue is one of those people. And who are these people? These people are like Bunny. They're like Larry. They're like Shay today. But they're glamorous outsiders they're audacious people from small towns who don't know what they're going to do don't have an end goal in mind they just know that that something inside them is propelling them to be insane and creative and demented and bonkers and so you get this influx of these audacious glamorous outsiders no one was giving them an airline ticket they weren't texting their mothers Please pay my Amex card. These are people (laughs) who were scrappy and crazy and creative, and it produced the 80s. And the backdrop of all this, the backdrop is 
the worst fucking decade of my life where all your friends are dying. We were we were in the midst of this terrible death and destruction of our friend groups. And, and I often wonder if the, the unfurling of creativity that happened in the 80s, maybe part of part of why it was so vigorous and so high voltage and why you had these extraordinary people like RuPaul come out of it, maybe it, that had something to do with it, the, the misery and death that was going on as a, as a backdrop for that. Man, what a breakdown there, Simon. I mean, yeah, the pain of that era and the AIDS epidemic, I think you see it in multiple communities. Pain often creates really purposeful art and really uh, powerful art. And I think we saw that in the 80s and the 90s. Shay, I'm going to bring you in here. You know, you've innovated a lot in this new era of drag. Do you take inspiration from the 80s and 90s era of nightlife and bring that into what you do now? Oh, absolutely. I think um, for me, what I always tend to go to are like my first introductions and associations with drag culture, house music. But I will never, I honestly will never, ever forget the first time I saw RuPaul, my sister, my older sister, um, Ayana, may she rest in peace, um, was such a huge fan of RuPaul. And I remember, because she obviously knew that I was a special little child, sat me down because uh, it was the, the music video was playing on MTV for Supermodel, You Better Work. And she was like, come here, I want you to see this. And I remember sitting down like on the floor and like looking up, watching the TV and being so just entranced by what I was witnessing. I didn't, I didn't even know what a drag queen was. I just remember seeing RuPaul and being like, I don't even know. It was kind of like seeing an alien. I was like, I don't even know what it is that I'm witnessing right now. But whatever this is, I want to experience a piece of that. And I, I didn't really know at that time that such a deep seed had been planted. But it was definitely there. And those influences still, you know, really, really contribute a lot to my art and my point of view today. Uh Simon, there were so many drag queens in this era of NYC. What to you made RuPaul stand out amongst the others? Well, my first encounter with Ru, I thought, wow, you know, holy crap. She just looks incredible. First of all, you know, she was three foot taller than me um, in these extraordinary (laughs) heels with tunnel curls. So she was bringing some of that pageant glamour, but making it hip, making it groovy and being incredibly tall and most importantly, being immaculate. She was in a class of her own, sorry, Bunny, with the terms of the immaculate maquillage. Larry T., what do you think? You know, uh, Rue didn't just come down from the heavens uh, meticulously done. In fact, it was right up until her single was released that she was still really rough. And it was just like she was just on survival mode. She would just throw it on and, you know, just literally she could do her makeup in 10 minutes if need be. And because it was like survival drag at that point. But when she got that deal and she did the video for Supermodel You Better Work, bitch, which I co-wrote, uh, you know, it, it came out of the fact that we'd gone 
we'd gotten a gig in Milan and gotten to see a Versace show, a Jill Sanders show. And we were, we were fashion uh, addicts and we were like, Oh my God. And we got to see the supermodels and, uh, and I'm sure that's where it came from. Uh, Before then she didn't have the gorgeous curls. She didn't have the uh, perfect hair. She didn't have the, the waist cincher. And that was really the, uh, beginning of the the new RuPaul, you know, when she does her look at the beginning of each show and she says, you know, like, this is the front and this is the back, kind of came from uh, the beginning of her um, career with the song Supermodel, You Better Work, Bitch. Yeah, and she didn't want to do This is the Back before Supermodel because three inches of that big foot were hanging off of those mules. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think like glamour drag and comedy drag historically have always been quite separate. And I think the magic of Rue is this, she mashed it together and it worked so well because she's just an innately funny person. And I remember the people who were fun, which was Bunny and the Pyramid Club and the, the John Badams and the Suzanne Barches of the world. And then there were these very sort of, introspective people wearing brooches at the neck. And so I think that's an important distinction because then Rue has uh, fearlessly put together comedy drag and glamour drag. Larry, Rue briefly moved to L.A. after struggling in New York for a bit. And then you made a call to bring him back. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. You know, I'm, I remember at the time uh, when Rue left New York, I remember just thinking, oh, this is this is no good. And I also had been to L.A. enough to know that uh, drag wasn't going to necessarily at that time be a key to stardom because out there drag really kind of meant you were hooking. You know what I mean? And so uh, she went out there and she kind of hit bottom out in L.A. and uh, she was staying in, on couches and and she had no money and she was walking around L.A. And you know you're in trouble when you're walking around L.A. So I I called the bitch and I said, Rue, what are you doing over there? Like, like a stern mother. <laughs> and I said, you need to get your ass back to New York. And so I bought her a ticket back to New York. But she had this one moment where, and if she can't talk about it without crying. And it's really like, it's the only time I see that girl cry is when she's talking about this moment where she really lost her faith that she was going to be a star. I don't believe she ever totally lost her faith, but there was doubt there. But then when she got back to New York, she just set herself straight. Larry, can you break down what it meant for RuPaul to come back to New York City and be crowned the Queen of Manhattan? Well, you know, the, the King and Queen of Manhattan was totally just Michael Alex's another excuse for Michael Alex to throw a party. There was no <laughs> voting system. There was no uh, group of judges deciding. Every year we would just get, uh, we would sit down and decide like who we thought was big enough to like be King or Queen of Manhattan. And we just needed somebody that was like big enough of a personality that we could hang this thing around them. So <laughs> it was really just a scam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a dubious title, which I also received. Queen. Now, what year were you? I don't remember, but I think it was before Rue. Uh, the, uh, the, yeah, this isn't something that we put on our press releases. This is something, you know, that the limelight did. So shortly after that, 
Rue is in Love Shack with the B-52s. Larry, walk us through the importance of that national appearance for RuPaul. You know, the Love Shack video was really Rue's Farrah Fawcett moment because Farrah Fawcett was on a TV show where she didn't really say anything, but everybody said, who is that? I remember my dad and I say, waiting for Farrah to show up on this TV show. And in the Love Shack video, she plays the Farrah Fawcett role where you're watching the video and it's cute and everybody, it's like, you know, a bunch of normies dressed up in 60s gear. And then there's RuPaul. Uh, uh, like doing this crazy dance. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was that moment where everybody in, that saw the video and everybody saw that video, they went, who is that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, Larry, I'm going to stick with you. You wrote Supermodel, or, or, or co-wrote it. Did you know it was going to be a massive success when you when you did that? Oh, God, no. You know, I wrote Supermodel because, A, I love RuPaul, and uh, and I wanted to see them uh, be big. And they had they got a record deal with, of all things, this hip hop label called Tommy Boy. And I thought, well, if you're going to do a song, you why don't you take what is that theme of the moment? And at the time, it was all about the supermodels. The supermodels would come to our love machine parties in a supermodel cluster, Linda, Christie, and Naomi, and they'd stand together so that you couldn't miss them under a light. Like, uh, which was just fabulous. And all the queens would come up and say, oh, well, Cindy Christie, you're my favorite, you know. And, uh, and it came out so quick that we hadn't even signed the paperwork when it came out. And I remember at the time thinking, mm, I don't know. And then, you know, I learned to love it. 25 years later when the money's still rolling in off that. (laughs) Larry, do you remember that mix that was played in the New York clubs, which were more underground? They never played the the radio mix. They just played one, and I I never understood this, where all you heard was work, work, work. What was the name of that mix? Well, yeah, it was, yeah, there was an underground mix. You know, it was on the, uh, most dance songs would have a, a life about three months, but this song stayed on the chart the entire year. And it was because halfway through, MTV picked up the video. And then that uh, convinced Tommy Boy to doing this remix that was more tribal. It was just tribal drums. And then, so it stayed on longer than any other song that year. All right, when we come back, we're going to chat about Drag Race. More making in a minute. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, and RuPaul began a new project with a longtime friend, Randy Barbato. And in his eyes, I'm going to say this without crying, I could see everything that I've done in my career, I could see reflected back in his eyes. I could see that he could see what, I, what my potential was, what I could do. I had never met anyone who could see that thing. Barbado and Fenton Bailey had founded World of Wonder Productions, 
and they wanted to recruit RuPaul for a new reality TV show. Ru was hesitant at first, but one thing changed his mind. President Barack Obama's 2008 win. He told Vulture in 2017 he felt a social and cultural change coming, and RuPaul's Drag Race was born. But when the series piloted, it was very low budget. They shot in a basement. The control room was a closet. Here's a season one contestant, Chanel. It was filmed through a Coke bottle. We know that. <laughs> it was. It was actually. It was a very, very, very small set. I remember uh, checking into the hotel, and it was a very mediocre establishment. Uh. And it was like, okay. The show did not need money to be successful. It needed stories, and it delivered. One queen revealed she was HIV positive. Another discussed weight problems. I would like to send out to the plus size community. Live your dreams. Don't let anyone stop you. Don't let your size stop you. Unfortunately, I'm the first to go, but I made it here. And people loved it. It became known for its iconic looks and iconic lines. Now, sashay away. Five G's, please. Good God, get a grip, girl. My big, fat, 14-inch clock. I don't have to be I'm your right friend there. to win this show. This is not RuPaul's best friend, right? Sherlock. It now has dozens of adaptations across the world. Señoras y señores, a continuación se inicia una nueva temporada. And 26 Emmys. And the winner is RuPaul's Drag Race. And in 2018, RuPaul earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Everybody say love. Love. Everybody say love. Love. Now drive that down Hollywood Boulevard. Get your ass out of here. This is absolutely the most important moment in my professional career. Thank you so much. All right. Now we're talking drag race. So, Simon, what was drag race's turning point? How does it go from a show filmed in a basement to this supernova that it is today? I think it's what you said in the montage that people don't really care about production values. They don't care that they, they, they played with it. World of Wonder very cleverly played with the low budget. They knew that you can't fool the audience, but what they gave them instead were all these incredible truths about people's lives, how they live. And, you know, the empathy that was incorporated into that show is priceless. And I think that propelled it forward, but not done in a mawkish, overly sentimental way. They never, they never becomes annoying. It's always incredibly real. And like, I'm like clutching the Kleenex in front of the TV because um, it's, I don't know, it's just it, the impact on the wider culture of something like that is just inestimable. So, Bunny, as a queen and a friend, when did you start to think, wow, this show, this is going to be a big deal? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I guess I have a little bit of a different op- opinion from maybe Simon and you, because I do, I'm, not, I'm too old to appreciate any reality TV. You know, I'm, I'm just it's not my era. <laughs> but um, also, I don't think the stories have anything to do with uh, a competition. And I just don't understand, uh, you know, I mean, if I'm seeing people competing, I want to see people who are ready for a competition. I mean, there was one season where everybody was sick and it it has become very mawkish to 
constantly focused. I mean, listen, if you're not ready to compete, then don't come on the show. You know, I mean, it's it's like one had a cyst and I'm like, okay, it's reality TV. But I mean, this is, get somebody without a cyst. Unless, you, you know, Drag Race stresses the stories and I guess they make some people feel good over the actual talent. I don't know. That's perhaps a little bit of a, of a different take. Shay? I think that's also due to kind of, I feel like the cultural shift that the show in and of itself has created. Because if you look at like the earlier seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, I felt like it really did, you know, try and show all the different aspects where drag talent can really allow themselves to flourish. I feel like because the competitors on the show have become so much younger. A lot of them lack that real life world experience of working a mic in a club, being able to command an entire audience, you know, a lot because of the internet and social media, a lot of people, you know, receive notoriety by just doing their makeup and sitting in their room. So it doesn't give them the opportunity to become this fully rounded uh, uh, drag queen. And I feel like that's where we start to see a lot of those weaknesses that come forward from the contestants. And, you know, we want to lean into the story because, you know, these are compelling people. But at the same time, I feel like in recent years and seasons, since, you know, a lot of the contestants now are all under 30, um, you, you don't really see that same type of like texture that I felt like really enriched and made those earlier seasons so impactful and game changing. Larry, what about you? What do you think? Well, you know what? You know, I think the world of wonder was clever enough to figure out that, uh, that a people wanted the stories and they wanted the lingo. I mean, the first two seasons, it should, it might have been called Madame Tussauds Drag Race because it was really stiff and really controlled and very, and Rue was very Judge Judy. But then World of Wonder focuses on these stories that, uh, and they kind of bring like a lot of average gay people right into your home, which I don't think a lot of people had ever seen. And since a large percentage of the viewership is women, because it's like, it's like comfort food for women. Uh, but I also agree with, uh, with Shay that, you know, a lot of the new contestants haven't had to actually hold a stage and keep a crowd and make them laugh and at uh, an MC, uh, a performance. And the new generation really doesn't have that kind of experience to really let the bitches have it like, the old girls did because they really had to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say this. Um, you know, like, Kim Chi is not the best live performer, and she knows it, and we've discussed it. But, I mean, she's got a makeup line out in a drugstore in L.A., maybe elsewhere. So there are different, I mean, there are queens called look queens who do incredible things uh, with their appearance but may not be the best live uh, entertainers. They're, they're still talented, but I don't know. Uh, I want to zoom out and talk about legacy. Super broad question here. I'm going to start with you, Shay. What was RuPaul's influence on the culture? I mean, um, there's so much influence there. You know, it's like RuPaul really is the blueprint for the way that we associate modern day drag stardom, you know, uh, when you were uh, reading off Rue's credits earlier and you said that they have 14 
albums, my jaw dropped. Now, I'm a fan of Rue's music, and, you know, I'll stream the albums, and I literally was like, damn, there are 14 of these bitches? I was like, she's got more albums than Rihanna. What RuPaul has really solidified is that you can be a drag mogul. You know, you can dip your toe in all of these different industries. You can be a television host. You can be a model. You can be a uh, recording artist. You can be an actor. You can have cosmetics. You can have a candy bar. You can have a doll. You can really do it all just as long as you put your all in it. And RuPaul has launched the careers of countless drag queens. And it is just so incredible to see the reach, to see the way that RuPaul's brand has continued to expand and and inspire. And the fact that like I can be out here now being a full-time drag queen, you know, be a homeowner, you know, like have young kids who come up to me and say that they look up to me for what I do is just really um, a testament to how impactful um, RuPaul's career and contributions to the world of modern drag have been. Well said, Shay. Simon? The Black Drag Queen. I've got in, in my book, which I have here, yes. me, um, <laughs> I have a, a, a chapter devoted to the Black Drag Queen because Black Drag Queens are the source you know, you can turn on CNN now and people are talking about throwing shade and blah, blah, blah. And it all goes back to the black drag queen as a cultural source and Rue being obviously the apex of that. So I'll just read you the first little bit here because I wrote it. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, Avis Pandavis, Kennedy Davenport, Jasmine Masters, Angie Extravaganza, Mona Foote, Nina Bonina Brown, Connie Girl, The Vixen, Chichi Devane, um, Shea Coulee, Peppermint. These are a few of my favorite black drag queens. Whether finger popping, reading, mopping, gagging, voguing, talking to the hand, twerking, working, throwing shade, serving genius and overness, being legendary or simply giving realness, the black drag queen is an enduring source of fascination and inspiration. And she generously and magnanimously enriches the culture, often receiving comparatively little in return. And we must all bow down before her. Hashtag gratitude. Oh, yes. And I think Rue is, um, you know, Rue is the, uh, you know, the empress of that. Larry, how about you? Let's talk about legacy. What, what's your take? You know, I, one of the things that always astounds me is there's there's been a lot of uh, of TV shows and documentaries around gender in America and on TV, and they always leave RuPaul out of uh, like uh, I don't know maybe because she stepped in it once or twice in in the ever changing dialogue around he she they them about tr having trans on the show, and I one of the things that is clear. RuPaul put her big pump in the door, opened the door just a little at first to allow people to express themselves in whatever way they chose. But for uh, for a whole generation, I 
I'll bet if you talk to any trans woman out there that if you said, do you remember when you first heard RuPaul's record? You know, they will remember like it was the Kennedy assassination. It was such a loud shot in the gender conversation throughout the world. It was like such a powerful moment of being seen for so many people. Trans women, uh, you know, a lot of times come through drag to get to their transness. You know, before they realize, oh, I'm, I'm a woman. I'm not a drag queen anymore. And to me, just watching this and watching, watching her make mistakes in it, to me, the show has also been a learning moment for the America and the world. Larry, you mentioned watching RuPaul make mistakes. She has previously gotten in some hot water for her comments about the trans community. That includes 2018. She justified the exclusion of trans women from drag race. Shay, you know, you come from a different generation here. So I'm curious what your take is, given what Larry just said about Rue also opening doors for trans women. So for me, I always have to at least um, try and give room for people's experiences. And, you know, it's RuPaul's experience coming up in the scene. It was a different time. And I feel like we needed to allow mother to have time to have this like learning moment without infighting within the community. Um, Having a learning moment is important, but also being on the other side and creating a teachable moment without kind of attacking somebody is also really important too. being able to have like compassion and the way that you approach someone. Um, I feel personally that the show has really made so many strides in its inclusion of the stories of trans individuals. Um, now we are seeing the inclusion of so many trans uh, contestants on the show. And as a viewer, as a fan, had I wish we had had more people with trans experience on there sooner? Absolutely. But I am so happy that we get to have that now. I feel like really has opened up a lot of doors around those conversations of identity and how transness relates to drag and how you can be trans and do drag. And, you know, it's not this or that. But at the same time, I also wanted for people to have a little bit more compassion for Rue and their journey and learning about how to handle this. I will say, I mean, that the change, um, the revolution in gender and trans has been quite rapid, you know. So we're all we're all sort of trying to keep up with it and and make sure we're all, we're expressing things in the in the correct way. And um, when I started writing my drag book, there was a firewall between drag and trans. If you wanted to insult um, uh, somebody who was trans, you would call them a drag queen, you know. So that that changed, and that change was rapid. And uh, I think. RuPaul's Drag Race is a mirror of the culture, you know, and now has evolved with the culture and now mirrors the culture. And, you know, that mirroring process is complex and involves dialogue and, as Shay says, compassion and and listening and being like, oh, okay, yeah, right, and I get that. You know, that's so important. Yeah, I mean, this is quite a, a great conversation, a powerful conversation, and a nuanced one. And I really appreciate all of you for... For you bring your full selves into it 
and, uh, and, and, and being a part of it. Before we say goodbye, does anyone have any final comments about what RuPaul means to you? Yeah, you know, she reminds me that really anything's possible. Uh, she can be a model. She can be an actress. She can be a singer. She can be a, a candy bar salesman. You know, <laughs> she can be a man. She can be a woman. To me, it's like anything's possible. You know, when she did her put up her, her signs all over Atlanta and Midtown that said, RuPaul is everything. It couldn't be more true. RuPaul is absolutely everything she decides she's going to be. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Making RuPaul was produced by Hina Shravastava and Justin Boole. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. More episodes are on the way, so be sure to press that subscribe button, and we'll see you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.